0: Welcome into episode 98 of the House of L podcast. I'm Lawrence Holmes. Thanks for checking out this episode. I'm excited about this episode because it's with one of my favorite people. It's with someone that I consider a mentor in this business and someone who, like, honestly, House of L was designed. To talk with people like Scoop Jackson. I mean, a guy that's been in the business for 30 years, that is continues to raise the bar of excellence, and someone that I, I admire greatly. I, I really do. And part of the reason why is because Scoop was able to in the nineties through his writing. Slam Magazine was able to give voice to being yourself in a public media square, that's, that's the thing. Like, if you listen to me and listen to Scoop, you're going to be like, I don't, I don't necessarily see the influence there. Where the influence is, is being able to be you. Whatever you is, being able to be authentic in who you are and how you present yourself is a big key. It's one of the reasons why I, I, I absolutely adore Scoop. Also, he's been extremely kind to me and encouraging in moments where I felt like I was running up against a brick wall like just out of nowhere scoop would pop up and tell me that I'm on the right path and that I'm doing good and those those things matter you know like it it's very valuable very very valuable so scoop has a book out it's called the game is not a game it's a new book there's supposed to be a big party this week but obviously with the way things have gone where we're trying to do a better job of social distancing because of coronavirus, that's been postponed. But the book itself, the book itself is still going to be available. I got a text from Scoop last night that the book is going to be available on March 17th. It's available in bookstores, online, through Amazon, and haymarketbooks.org. So if you want to check out his book, The Game is Not a Game, I recommend that you do because Scoop does some really interesting things with some of the most important stories that we discuss all the time, and his essays are are unique. So I'm glad that he has this platform, yet another platform to, to, to give us the gospel, to, to, to give us the gospel of what he's talking about. His career is so interesting. And if you're like, wait, I think I know, Scoop, the place where he's most prominent right now, outside of his own writing, is in those opens on SportsCenter, where the biggest stories, whether it's the national championship game or the Super Bowl, he's lending voice, both literally and figuratively, to those stories. So it was a real treat. We did this via Zoom which is I'm glad I, I learned how to use Zoom over the last year because I do think that it's going to be a way for people to connect while we're disconnecting socially. And I'm, I can tell you that I'm, I'm working on changing my curriculum for my class at DePaul because we're going all online. And Zoom will be a big, big portion. So it sounds a little bit different. I still think it sounds really good. And honestly, I think it sounds better than phone lines for the the most part. But I'll get to that on the other side of the interview. By the way, this podcast is being brought to you by Cork and Kerry. I know that Cork and Kerry had to kind of change things up with St. Patrick's Day. But when we do get to a point where... You want to gather and watch sports. That's a good place to do it. So thanks to to Bill Guidey for being a supporter of this podcast. CorganCarrie.com is where you can find out the most information leading up to this week. We're also brought to you by the Autumn Paper Company. That's right. I'm still using paper. Why? Because it really helps me. It really helps me. I figured out. That while I can keep notes on my phone, I'm very much helped by having a legal pad available to write stuff down. And it helps me remember things, to tell you the truth. So, if you're looking to get some paper, some cleaning products, Uh office supplies, office furniture, the Autumn Paper Company in Homewood, you should check them out. 773 551 zero two three seven again that's 73-551-0237. and when you call ask for george he'll help you out all right on to it scoop jackson is one of my favorites you're gonna hear a lot of stuff we're gonna spend some time talking about the bears quarterbacking situation and deshaun watson and colin kaepernick we're gonna spend some time talking about Slam Magazine and the NBA. what it is like to cover Michael Jordan and all sorts of stuff. The incomparable Scoop Jackson. I know how it is. I know how you do. I'm doing. I'm doing the best that I can. But so far, so good. Things are all right, man. I'm, I'm trying all, out here. I'm trying to to uh, to to live up to the standard that you set.
1: Uh, no, man. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. I not I, I I just set a standard, man. <laughs> talking about
0: it's so weird man i i got into a conversation with uh cameron smith right that's my man we were talking he said he said you know there are two people that if they ask me to show up i show up he's like you and scoop jackson he's like y'all are like my yodas i was like no 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 i was like scoop yoda (laughs) uh, you gotta make me somebody else i was like i'm i'm good with being uh, Obi-Wan, but, or Mace Windu, but we all know Scoop Yoda. I, I appreciate that, man. Like I said, I don't
1: know if I said a standard, man. I just, I did grinding, that's all. And, and grinding is a standard with hell,
0: you know. No, it's a good standard. Well, let, let me first ask you about the book, and now I want to talk about some other stuff. But Okay, cool. cool what well, made yeah. you d- decide that you wanted to do another book? And, and to take on a, a topic that has a lot of program directors, running scared
1: yeah uh well to be honest with you man the whole thing was my original deal with espn 15 years ago had a book component in the language of the contract so i was contractually supposed to do a book with them um and we never really came to an agreement on what that book was going to be i wanted to do something they wanted to do something else so in the various times we you know, came to the table on a project, it never really flushed out. And that was like, maybe within the first five years, I was there. Um, and after that, it kind of got, well, th- they started doing some shifting, and the whole book publishing part of ESPN kind of left, and they didn't have their in-house anymore. And I went on, and we were doing other columns, and, you know, really going, in. it just really never came back to the table. And when my situation changed with then when I went from Dot Com to Sports Center, it kind of freed me up to go back to doing long form writing because for eleven years I was already doing long form writing for ESPN on the site, um, and for the last four years I've been doing kind of short form writing for ESPN. I mean for uh, Sports Center and for the features unit, so I haven't really had the opportunity to dive into long form stories, and I've been doing long form stories forever, so. I had the freedom to finally find some topics. I, you know what? Why don't I take top topics that I would actually wind up doing columns on ESPN.com for? Do deep dives from a research standpoint, and turn those chapter, you know, I mean, those columns ch- topics into chapters, into full chapters. So it, it just made sense, man. You know, and you know me, Lawrence. I, I couldn't sit around and just be quiet. <laughs> you know, there was enough stuff going on and not that I'm quiet at, at SportsCenter, but there's a whole different thing when you're based on shaping your opinion around something and saying something, you know, uh, of meaning amongst topical situations as they exist in sports. And so much stuff was going by that I never got a chance to address in a long form manner and in a deep dive research manner. Uh, that I felt that over the last couple of years, I, I you know there were some things that were being missed. I thought that could be said, and I can contribute to that
0: conversation. It, it, it's interesting that it, I feel like sometimes the art compels us, or the the news of the day compels us. Where this yes. is there are things that were going on. You said, man, I I have feelings about this. I need to write these things down. Of the topics that you discuss, what what angle did was the spark that kind of lit the fuse on this one for you?
1: Probably the way it started off, the NFL, because I started the book off with the NFL. Um, and I don't want to say the Kaepernick situation was, you know, the nail in the coffin or, you know, the last straw, that broke the camel's back or whatever. But I think over the course of maybe the last five or six years, you know, we've seen things happen inside the NFL and, 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 kind of the veil has been pulled back and we're able to really look at the NFL for what it is and how it presents itself. And um, I did two columns on domestic abuse uh, with the NFL. Um, And those happened to be the last two columns I wrote on the NFL for ESPN. Hmm. Um, Don't know why, it just... You know, and this was like in 2013. Um, and so after that, I'm like, okay, you know, uh, there's too, too much stuff going on. Like I said, just the domestic violence situation, but you're looking at the head trauma situations. You know, um, you're looking at the retired players and not, them not getting money. You're looking at how they just made running backs disposable. You know, you look at all the things that Roger Goodell has said as far as, like, you know, public conduct is concerned and how he's been inconsistent in in levying fines and punishment against players. Um, And then you add all of that, you know, uh, to the Kaepernick situation. And it just – I couldn't just sit here as a journalist, as a sports journalist, and not really say something about that collective and how hypocritical the NFL has presented itself to be over the last decade. You know, and I think that was the spark from there. I'm like, you know what, there's actually enough information here to do a book. And I know, you know, ESPN is, you know, in bed because of the relationship with the NFL, but you know, everything is right there in front of us and it would be irresponsible not to say who's right or who's wrong, but just act like that's not there in front of us. That's kind of where it is. And that was the spark
0: for me. What's the most frustrating thing that you've encountered when talking to people about Kaepernick?
1: I don't know if frustrating is... Frustrating is... Well, okay, here's the way I answer your question. Frustrating is people speaking without actually bringing things of substance to the table when they are making their evaluation about why he's no longer in the nfl and to me i didn't hear it on anybody's network you know i didn't really hear too much in barbershop bar or barbecue conversation either is the fact and this was really simple to me and, and this drove the whole thing for me as a writer, as a journalist, from the tap the conversation. I needed somebody explaining to me how a guy who finished the season he last played as, I think, the 26th ranked quarterback in the NFL from, you know, just overall QBR rating. that He was ranked number 26th in the league. How he goes without injury from being number 26 in the league and there are 90 quarterbacks in the NFL. Each team carries at least three. 32 times three is 96. Let's give, you know, give or take a few. You know what I'm saying? Sure. 90 quarter. How does a guy go from 26 in the league to below 90? I don't get that. And nobody's been able to explain that to me. Explain how Barring injury, I don't care what your politics, explain to me how that happens to somebody. How does that happen? He didn't go from 29 years old to 40. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's not like he tore an ACL or, you know, strained a meniscus or an Achilles. Achilles. Nothing. But the man went from 26. And I'm not even talking about him starting. I'm talking about just him playing in the league. That's what I'm saying. He cannot get in the league. You're telling me he went from 26 to below 90 in
0: three months? He deteriorated that bad? It strains credibility, man. It it really does. And what I think is is weird about all of it is we've seen the NFL through a lot of different things be as cutthroat as possible. Like, the only thing that matters is the bottom line. That's how they run their business. The only thing that matters to the owners, win. I want to win and I want to make money. Those are the two things that they, that they work off of. I thought it was weird that in a, a league that is devoid of quarterback talent, that he was a guy that would be relatively inexpensive. Now, I've, I've been making this argument about the Bears. But you want to win, and, but you don't have a lot of salary cap room? Why don't you make an offer to Colin Kaepernick and put him in a room with Mitchell Trubisky and let's see what happens right. when those two guys have to compete. I I think that it, it's such a flammable situation to those in charge of NFL teams that they, for, they would forego the opportunity to win to be right about this. And I, I find it bizarre. I don't find it bizarre.
1: I, you know, I just – want them to say what it is that's all own up to it that's my whole point i never heard an owner just say hey you know what we just didn't want to deal with it i mean just say it out loud be up front be a man about it that's what you asked the question what irritated me and bothered me that's what bothered me and it bothered me that none of us in this business put a flame to their feet you know what i'm saying Tried to light any of the owners up in the ass and say hey Call this what it and none of us did that. Not
0: one of us. You know what what I found really interesting is you talk about barbecue and and, and barbershop talk I had a conversation at Blues Barbershop on 53rd with the guys about of Kaepernick. And I had this weird day where I'm walking up and down 53rd Street and people they know what I do and they're asking me about what's going on with the bears and why wouldn't they bring in And what was interesting is that most of the black people that I talked to said, man, there's clearly something here. And the McCaskies, the McCaskies are racist is what people said to me. And I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable saying that. Right. I understand why you feel that way. What I thought was really interesting was having the platform that I have at the score and getting interaction with white fans that had come around and were like, it's really strange that no one has brought Kaepernick in. And it's really strange that the bears haven't brought Kaepernick in Lawrence. Do you think race has a, a part in this? And I took that as a small victory scoop. Right? There were people that were sitting there and their I, it took, you know, three years of this,
1: right? But,
0: but their eyes like going, I've eliminated every possible thing right? here. The only thing that I'm left with is, right. is there a racial or bias component to this? Exactly.
1: And that's to my point. If we go back to 2016, three years ago, the evidence and everybody's into numbers now, the evidence is right there. Once again, how do you go from 26 to below 90? That's right there. So now you could have you started eliminating three years ago. But my question to you and what you've encountered, I'm trying to find out what makes the McCaskies different than any other owner in the NFL. Why are you singling them out as being, quote, unquote, racist when nobody else is doing anything? One of the things I had the luxury of doing, I give ESPN a lot of credit for this, is when there were rumors after or in the middle of year one that the Baltimore Ravens may be interested in him. And sports says, hey, you know, Scoop, do you have an opinion on this? If he does get with the Baltimore Ravens, if he does get back in the league, would you like to write something on it? And I say, yes, I would love to. But here's the angle I'm going to take. Just because one team said he would work for them, we can't let the other 31 off the hook. Right. We still have have a problem. And they're like, hey, cool if you want to take that angle cool to take that angle because i don't want to lose sight of the bigger picture because we can still lose sight of the bigger picture and that okay he's in all is right no it doesn't work that way so i wanted to take that angle from the beginning but i say that to bring it to you is that people cannot single out the mccaskies on a colin kaepernick situation and saying that they
0: are possibly racist because they don't choose when every other team in the nfl is doing the exact same thing they're not doing well, let me, let me explain. Now, here's why. Because it was right in the middle of Trubisky struggling and Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes doing well. Right. And, and people, you know, going back over the 2017 draft are going, well, wait, why didn't they draft Deshaun Watson? Why wouldn't they have been happy with Deshaun Watson or Patrick Mahomes? Now, there a lot of people just say – Mahomes is a unicorn, and nobody knew, which I think is bullshit. But that's a, a whole nother conversation. But the but the Watson one, when it was reported by the Tribune that the Bears never met with him, mm-hmm. that was the thing that kind of sparked that conversation. Because mm-hmm. people were like, "Well, wait, the guy won a national championship. He beat up Alabama's defense, which is the most like pro ready defense. Why in the world would they not meet?" with him and that's where they go well where where the the white fans of my show were like is do you think that these things are connected to them not wanting to have them not wanting to draft a black quarterback as their number one overall pick and then it kind of evolved into the conversation about you. Kaepernick that's that's why you're right like it's not for, for my view, it's, it's a tab myopic because I'm focusing on Chicago. But that's right. where it came from. With people trying to understand what was it that allowed Ryan Pace to go, no, I'm not going to talk to the guy that won a national championship at the quarterback right. spot.
1: Right, right. And I think that's been a narrative with, about the Bears for years. This is not a new conversation. I just look at it as, you know, Kaepernick is a whole totally different situation. You know, it's totally unique, and we can have this conversation about the Bears because this narrative already exists without them even – without even having the counter-capping situation even existing. You know what I'm saying? the fact that over, what, 100 years they've had, what, four black quarterbacks, I think, even played for the team. They haven't drafted any. I don't right. Think. But they've only had four in the entire history of 100 years. You know, that's a conversation worth having about – Not are you, you know, you can have an overall racist conversation, but you can say, are you racist about having players or having a player at this position because of the power that this position commands? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say that an organization in my mind is blatantly racist. You know, when you do at least have a black coach at some point in time, and you know, they did have that with Lovey Smith, you know, um, but the quarterback situation lends itself to a whole nother conversation. And I just think that the Kaepernick situation and looking how the whole NFL has been complicit to make sure he does not have a place any longer in their league, I think it's wrong to single out the McCassies on that. I think those are two different conversations. I hear what you're saying, though, because that narrative is around.
0: Let me ask you about how you started. When, when did you know that you could write And when did you feel comfortable sharing the things that you wanted to write?
1: Um, I knew I had the ability to write at a certain level. When um, I got into graduate school, because of my letters of interest, I sent in. Um, Northwestern, which is my backup because um, in case Howard University didn't come through, I wanted to have at least a backup plan. Um, but Northwestern and Howard University both accepted me without even having to take the GRE in the graduate wow. school. They were like, the letter you wrote to get in here, done, you're in. That's when I knew I had the ability to, you know, write in a the way that touched people. You know, that resonated, you know, beyond just like, personal letters and what I been saying the other and, you know I was like maybe I'm onto something um and then that transferred to a secondary level when while I was at graduate school at Howard University and I started writing columns for their student newspaper and the stuff I was writing there got picked up by the Washington Post got picked up by the christian science monitor got picked up by usa today you know and and the stuff i was writing i was getting small checks for and at the time i'm in grad school i'm um i'm doing my graduate practicum at bet you know as an associate producer producing shows but i wasn't getting any money for that so you know once you're doing things and once you start getting money for something, you kind of start leaning that way, especially when you're in school, carrying your own tuition. So that's when I knew I was able to like really, I really needed to start to look at writing in a way because somehow it was connecting with individuals. It connected for me getting into graduate school and it was connecting on another level professionally because not only were bigger organizations picking up what I was writing, but I was also getting money for it on the side. So I'm like, okay, maybe I really need to look at this because something's going on here.
0: So. I've always admired your authenticity. I mean, it comes across in your books, of course. It comes across in any column that you've written. I wonder though, were you ever worried that your authenticity was going to be rebuffed by people who don't understand where you're from?
1: Yes, of course. But I couldn't concern myself with that um, because I've seen how us as Black folks have had to deal with that our ties our entire existence here in America. And if you believe in what you're doing and you feel it's strong enough, then the people that will get it and understand will get it and they'll understand it's for them. And then if you continue to do certain things at a certain level, then even though the people, there will be a group of people that don't get it, they'll hopefully eventually learn to respect and the examples I'll give you is you look at other Black writers, but the, the one thing I've always gone to is music. And you look at how music has always played a role in America having a, you know, pretty full understanding, along with sports, or gaining a better understanding of who we are as people because music is spoken for us. So in my mind, I've always looked at myself as an Isley Brothers. Mm. You get what I'm saying, like, or Frankie, Beverly, and Mays. Where they're doing what they're doing, and they're not doing it for anybody but us. They don't care if there's a whole other part of society that doesn't get it. The Ozzy brothers know whenever they put something on wax, they know in their minds it is great. Frankie, Beverly, and Mays knows whenever they put something down as a group on wax, they know it's great. Anita Baker knows every time she puts something down on wax, it is great there's no pop audience there there's no trying to sell to anybody this is this is this is who i am this is what i do and eventually people will get it and if you go through the history barry gordy and motown that was not for that was not pop music that was black soul music made for us and eventually people came along and recognized and respected it i've always tried to walk in that path with that mindset that yes i know there's going to be pushback but i can't you know I can't shorten or lessen what I feel is my authentic voice and is my best contribution to this game, to this genre, by trying to commodify what I do for somebody else who may not get it. If I do it well enough, they'll come around. If they don't get it, at least they respect it.
0: It comes across even when you do opens to big things on SportsCenter, like hearing you do an open for the national championship game. Right, like- right it comes across and I wonder what type of feedback do you get from the, the folks at ESPN? Because I hear it. And, and I hear, I hear Chicago. Like I hear the South side of Chicago. Now that might be because we know each other, but I hear it. So Mm -hmm. what do they say when, when they hear it?
1: I think over a period of time, they've gotten it. Um, I give ESPN a lot of credit. They have, you know, we, 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 but it hairs on a few things over the course of 15 years. But for the most part, they've allowed me to be me. And, you know, that comes good and bad. You know, there have been many times where ESPN has stopped me from, you know, I hate to use the term, hanging myself. You know what I'm saying? Like, look, they have made sure I have tried to not be the one to get my own way. They saved me on a lot of those cases. But at the same time, you know, I've had to fight with them on things that I believe, you know, could have been in their best interest as a company. Because the voice was a little bit different and it, it stops them from sounding, you know, homogenized, stops them from sounding the exact same throughout this whole process. And it'd be good for them to have a different voice in it. So there's always been, you know, a, a dance that we've done, but it's been a dance out of respect. So over the course of 15 years, I, th- I think, you know, they just, hey, scoop, do you. And I've gotten that a lot, to be honest with you. I've gotten a like, scoop, just do you. And, you know, with sports and stuff, I think they want that voice because I think they'll know that Tom Minaldi is a different voice. I think they understand that, you know, um, whoever else is a different voice. I think they understand, you know, that, you know, Shelley Smith and Sarah Spain and, um, you know, even my man, uh, uh, uh Jay, you know, is, they're different voices. You know, Mike Tarico when he was there, was a different voice. Keith Oldman is a different, I think they understand that they're different, Chris Berman is a different voice. The, one of the first things I had to do when I came over to Sports Center was write for Chris Berman. Wow. They were like, hey, the NFL draft is coming up, we want some fresh copy for Chris to read, you know, during the draft. Can you come up with a few things? They gave, I said, all right, we're well, here, let me cut. And I came with a few things, and Chris was reading them, and they were like, this is great stuff, but it doesn't fit him. Would you mind moving forward and you doing it. And I'm like, no problem. And that's kind of the way it's been where it's like, they respect the writing, but now they connect the voice to it and they think that it goes goes hand in hand. They weren't trying to shape me to do something for Chris. They wanted my voice and hopefully it worked for somebody. But if it didn't, either we'll find somebody else for it or we'll get you to do it. And I give you a a lot of credit that they've allowed that to happen and allowed that space to exist. And I think, you know, it it hasn't been done without, you know, them actually going through and having a history of understanding how smart it is for them as a brand to have unique voices in certain spaces. I think Stuart Scott has allowed them to understand that, hey, you know what? Maybe we don't need everybody sounding the like. You know what I'm saying? I think Robin Roberts has been somebody that they're like, you know what? Let's let her have a voice. And they've seen what Robin Roberts has been able to take a sports career go places we never even saw they didn't even see happen with her having such a unique voice once again keith oldman has a unique voice you know and i think you know you go through what they've been able to do and they say you know what part of the thing of us being espn is we can develop and you know culminate and and give birth to new and unique voices without losing anything you know Baby Scoop is one of those unique voices. We need to just let him breathe. You know what I'm saying? Let him breathe because they're so big that if, if, if they let me breathe and it goes wrong, their bottom line is not going to fall off. You know what I'm right. saying? It's not, it's, it's not going to hurt them. They're looking to be like, hey, Scoop, you know what? We're looking at it. It's not working. It's not resonating. You know, either you, know, you can change it up a little bit or we're going to change it up a little bit. Either way. You know, but I think, you know, they've been in the business long enough and seen it happen over the course of their 30 or however many years they've been around to know that there is space to have unique voices in this piece. Hell, Bill Simmons was a unique voice. You know what I'm saying? Look what happened with him. So, I think, you know, I, I think they're smart enough to understand that sometimes it's necessary to have that. I just had to be at the right place at the right time with them on it.
0: As a Chicago basketball historian, what was this year's All-Star game like for you?
1: Here's the best way I can put it, man. Everybody goes through levels. We all say it's always levels, there's levels to everything. There's levels, to get to do this, there's levels. You gotta get to this level to be able to do this. As long as I'm being from Chicago, I think we always know that Chicago always matches everybody's level when we decide to do something, for the most part. And that's that big shoulders, we got levels, right? I think what All Star Game did was legitimize what shy level is like. My nephew and my sons, after the game, after the whole experience, the whole weekend, we're like, you know what? Now, from now on, there's everybody else's level and there's shy level. We just showed the world what shy level means. When Chicago, Puts his stamp on. Now we've been doing this forever. You know what I'm saying? Maurice White from Earth, Wind, and Fire, Chicago, Shiloh. Curtis Mayfield, Chicago, Shiloh. Donnie Hathaway, Chicago, Shiloh. Louis Farrakhan, you know, even though Michael Jordan wasn't born here, what he did here, even though Oprah Winfrey wasn't born here, you know, Barack Obama. We go down the line. Coach Shout Shiloh. Billy Crystal, Shiloh. You know what I'm saying? Roger Ebert, Shout. We can go down the line, man. Hell Washington. You know, we go down the line. There's a level that we do things that separates us from everybody else to do things great. And I think the All-Star game really solidified what Shy level looks like. That's the best answer I can give you.
0: What was cool for me is that a lot of times nationally, when Chicago is put in the spotlight, the spotlight is centered on downtown. Here's yes. the beam. Here's the lake, here's Lou Malnati's pizza, here's maybe the river. Maybe they'll maybe. show you
1: the river. But right.
0: What I loved about All-Star was the way that the west side and the south side of Chicago are often portrayed is negative. Yes. And, and I felt like that was the most represented nationally that the south side and the west side have ever been. Like it, it was crazy to yes, me it was. to see Common up there speaking poetically for seven minutes about Chicago, to see kids doing footwork, yes, at the All Star game, yes, house music being played in between in, breaks, commercials, yes, exactly. Thank you. I, it, it just felt as if there was a, and it was so poetic to me because I, I left for All Star Saturday night, and you know it had been shitty outside, like all right. week. We were like Chicago going to Chicago uh, once here. And that night the sun came out and it warmed up like right before everyone got to the United Center. And I just felt like we really we put on like we actually we, we did our best version of ourselves for for company coming over and it couldn't have gone better.
1: But we did the best version of ourselves for ourselves, too, because. You know. A lot of times, man, we have to prove to ourselves what our own value, what our own worth is to us. You know, I think sometimes in Chicago, we fall victims to letting the outside world dictate how we feel about ourselves. And let the outside world dictate what we know we're capable of. And we know we're capable of being great. You know, we wear that shy thing with a sense of pride that is probably equal to, you know, people from, you know, Sao Paulo in Brazil or Lagos in Nigeria or you know people from Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. We wear are we where who we are? And sometimes it's not about just the outside world. Because we can't really control that, but we know ourselves better and we know how great we can be. And I think not only did we show the outside world, we proved something to ourselves that we needed to hear and show and prove to ourselves so that we can get back on track for basically understanding. What we're capable of, you know, and, and, and not only for what you're talking about, about what was seen on television. I'm talking about what was going on that people who weren't here in the city and didn't see on TV, didn't even see, just the day-to-day functions. You know, just the on-the-ground stuff, like walking around and, you know, and, and seeing Don C's work. You know what I'm saying? And seeing Virgil's stuff and seeing some of the parties that were being thrown and seeing some of the young artists just out and all you know, just all, you know the all the just just being shy, man. Just it was being great. Shy,
0: I went to Sabina's that Saturday morning because they had the yeah, game. The peace game, yeah. And, and, and I was like, man, this is just like wonderful. Like we really, it, it's it's heartening to see us do like that. And I'm glad that everyone involved was involved the way that they were. Whenever I, I have someone on that. Has been in or around the the circle of Michael Jordan I have to ask Michael Jordan questions okay what's it like to cover Michael Jordan
1: at the time it was um how can I say this there are a few times in everybody's life I think you realize and know you're going through something special and I think all of us who had to cover the Bulls during that time knew that we were going through something special. Um, I always equated it to like being in Chicago and watching the public league back in the late 70s -hmm. and then watching Mark Aguirre do what he was able to do at DePaul University. You knew Mark's three years at DePaul that that was something unique. You know, if you knew that time was something special, you know, um, and Michael gave you that same feeling of that. Okay. You better pay attention to everything going on because this is not going to happen again. And you just knew that you felt it almost from day one. Um, but for me personally, at the time I was one of the only Nash, I was early on. I was one of the only national writers that was based here in chicago everybody else had to fly in the beauty i had was i was even though slam wasn't a big magazine at the time i was everybody from sports illustrated sport news you know all the other publications that were national and all the dailies that were national be it the washington post be it the la times you know but all like Street smith magazines that came out once a year. all these other basketball you know outlets they were all in new york and all in la and someone went down south you know whatever nobody nationally was here i was one of the only ones and to be here and have that at my disposal and to be able to go to practice every day to be able to see every game like the people that nationally did not see every game because they didn't have what was it uh chicago what was the television station back then? It wasn't CLTV. What was it before that?
0: Sports Vision.
1: Sports Vision, right. They didn't have Sports Vision. You know, they didn't have the channels where, like I said, that game Michael Jordan scored 69 points against the Cleveland Cavaliers. That was a Wednesday game, I think. They didn't watch that game and know that Michael only had two dunks. Everything else was jump shots. You know what I'm saying? Because it was nobody, there was no, you know, you know, Bob Costas. You know, there was no NBC.
0: There's there was no Woj.
1: No yeah, none of that stuff was around, man. So just like, yo, I'm kicking back at the crib with my boy. We on a Wednesday. Gotta watch Mike. You know, for no reason at all, not knowing what it's become, you know, not knowing that he was going to give you one of those special performances that seemed to happen. Game, after game, after game, after game, after game. To be able to be one of the few national guys and to be able to incorporate those stories into my stories, was special because the national guys couldn't incorporate that because they weren't here. They missed it. To be able to walk into barbershops at any time during the week and have conversations with local cats knowing that I was a local cat but taking that story nationally where nobody else was able to do it was unique and special. To go to the bars, to go to the barbecues, you know, to be able to go outside the damn stadium and just walk around the west side and have conversations. Cats like, yeah, man, Michael's over here rolling dice the other day. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> None of these guys like, hey, and, and if you know Mike, you know that's true. You know that's true. None of these national dudes were getting this stuff. So to be privy to stuff like that, man, and just those stories and, you know, just to be around that, you knew it was special. You knew it was special. And um, I don't know what your next question is, but... One of the things that made it good was the fact that, you know, I was able to get in and get out where other riders weren't able to get in and get out because I didn't have to write about Michael every day. I didn't have to write about the Bulls every day. So I could show up, you know, every five weeks if I wanted to. And Cass would be somewhat happy to see me as opposed to what the daily beat writers had to go through, and they get on athletes' nerves. So I kind of benefited from that, too but I was smart enough to also make sure I went to games and not have to put work on them. Like I wouldn't, just cause I was there, I'd be, Hey man, I ain't, I don't need anything. You know, scoop, you need, I don't need anything. I just can't say what's up. You know what I'm saying? And that goes a long way over the course of like, you know, 10 years when you're dealing with this run that they had, you know, cause when somebody is happy to talk to you, that makes your job, a lot easier and it makes the content that you're going to get probably much greater because there's a comfortability there and you haven't gotten on people's nerves and you haven't overstayed your welcome. So all of that plays in what that experience was like, you know, for me, you know, um, covering the Bulls at that time.
0: Slam magazine holds a very special place in the hearts of basketball fans of a certain age. Yeah. What was it about Slam that did that?
1: I think it goes to your question earlier about the authenticity. You know, I give Dennis Page as a publisher a lot of credit. He wanted to do a magazine that was basically anti-Sports Illustrated. You know, he wanted to do a a basketball magazine that was true to the culture of basketball, not the game, the culture of the game. And, you know, we were lucky enough to not only find each other, but he was also lucky enough to find a guy by the name of Tony Gervino to basically run and oversee and shape the magazine for what it became, you know? um, And I think that's why it touched a lot of people. And still to this day, it touches a lot of people in a way that most other publications or, you know, outlets are because it's rooted in trying to be authentic to the culture of the game. And that comes with flaws. That comes with not having to apologize. That comes with not having to shape yourself into something that you're not that comes with not really worried about who your advertisers are. You know, that comes with a lot of components inside of this game that, you know, a lot of people function uh, or cannot function without in this game. You know, Slam was able to basically build itself up with being able to function with things that a lot of other publications weren't able to function without. You know, and at the root of that is what you said earlier. It was that that authenticity. You know, now, um, that didn't translate to us trying to just be lazy and just trying to keep it real you know we still try to compete with the big boys as far as our content was concerned we just tried to stay as true to the subject matters we were speaking about as much as possible
0: when kobe passed away how did you take it and what is there to learn from his life
1: uh one i took it bad because of the way the information came to me and it came from my sons and um kobe was such a you know major part of their lives you know um because of the relationship they were able to build through me and my connection with kobe and seeing him all the time and how he's always you know being kobe and that relationship built on what you just said earlier what slam magazine meant to certain people at a certain age Well, kobe is from that group You know, he was in high school when Slam Magazine was around, so it was a big deal to him. You know, when he first met us, we were like superstars. Mm. You know, seriously. You know, and the same thing with, like, you know, the Kevin Garnetts and the Stephon Marberries and the LeBron James's. You know, we were the magazine that they read coming up. So just like, you know, the Gary Smiths, you know, and the Rick Rileys, or Sports Illustrators were like stars to me, wanting to be a writer or whatever, you know, we were stars to basketball players because we were speaking their language to them and we were staying true to the coast of the game. So by the time we met Kobe, we were like, he, you know, we've had players ask up for autographs. <laughs> you know, wow. we've we had players running up to us like, yo, I want my slam score, I want my slam score. You know, when players run the other way from the media, we had them running to us. So we were able to build a relationship that was very unique when it came to athletes. And Kobe being one of those high school athletes that was – Raised, you know, on Slam Magazine, not only in America, but it was one of the few things he was able to read in Italy that connected it to a game and to the sport and to the culture that he wasn't getting where he was living at the time, you know. So, over the course of having that be how our relationship started, it trickled down to my kids, you know, from the day he met them. It's like, yo, come here, young, you know, come here, young fellow, you know, and he's like. 20 years old, and they're like three and five, you know what I'm saying, or whatever, but he's holding them like, you know, like, they're my nephews, you know, it's just, so when they found out about it, they hit me, and they're in Philly and New York right now, so they were like, dad, is this true, and I'm like, ah, it can't be true, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, let me, you know, find out, because they're like, only thing we're getting the information from is TMZ. And of course, and you understand this, working for a, a large network or, or a sport network, you know, you become the first point of contact to find out if it's verified or not.
0: It happened to me. I was, I literally got off the plane at the Super Bowl and people were texting me like, is this true? Like, Is this true? Right.
1: Right, right. So I tried to look around, do whatever I could, and I couldn't find anything to confirm anything. So basically what I did is I called our ESPN NBA editor at ESPN.com. And I, you know, I hit voice up. I said, Royce, I just want to know, is it true? He said, Scoop, we're about to verify it publicly in two minutes. And I'm like, damn. Like, they were going through their process. He's like, we're about to confirm it in two minutes. I'm like, wow. So I had to call them back. And then I had to call my wife. And not only, you know, my wife and Kobe had a unique, you know, relationship the same way. She loved Kobe to death. But it was also her favorite player, period. Just whether she had a connection with him or not. She Dirk Nowinski and Kobe Bryant are the two players. She like that's it. That's all. That's all. Like and Allen Iverson. But those are her holy grail players. But Kobe, because they really, really developed a relationship, you know, over the period of time, you know. Um, and I was like, I gotta call her. And it's one of those things where you know, I right, how you break this news to somebody who you know that this is their favorite player, but it's also a personal connection with this. So I had to tell her, which was borderline heartbreaking mm. because I knew it was going to hit her and I knew it was going to hit her hard. Um, because like mo- pe- most people, I know you went through this too. It was so unbelievable. She responded with the Kobe who like, there's only one Kobe, you know who it's, but they don't even want to believe it. But after telling her I had to go back and deal with my sons and that was really bad for me because you know they're 23 and 21 years old right but they're still your kids and you know this is hitting them personally and for you not to be able to wrap your arms around your kids you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. they're not together you know, say one's in Philly one's in New York you know, they don't have any family around and to basically tell them that somebody kind of inside their family has died. Somebody that means a lot to you has died. And the one thing you always want to do as parents is be able to wrap your arms around them, whether they want it or not. And to not be able to do that in that moment still fucks with me. You know what I'm saying? It still does to this day. You know, um, and that's what kind of made it a lot more difficult because... If you come to my house, one of the first things you see when you walk in here is a picture of Kobe. When you go into my office, one of the first things you see is an image of Kobe. When you come to the second floor of our house, we have a huge painting outside of our bedroom of Kobe. You know what I'm saying? Kobe had a unique non-family role in this household as if he was family there wasn't a floor you walk on and his presence wasn't there. So it took on a different meaning over the course of weeks because people that know us, knew how close he was to us and not wanting to speak out on it from a journalist standpoint made it that much more difficult because... I didn't feel even as close a relationship that I had with him. I thought it would be superficial even for me to say something about it. Um, But I was able to find a way from an ESPN standpoint to write something for them in case they needed it. Mm. Um, I said, because I didn't want to speak for the sake of speaking. And I saw a lot of people doing that and I didn't want to fall into that trap. I didn't want to fall into the trap of just speaking about Kobe just for the sake of speaking about him. I didn't want to fall into the trap of speaking about Kobe for me. You know, if I was going to say anything about Kobe, it would be about him. It would be about his family, not about me. I didn't want to internalize that. So I was able to write something that looked at what you said earlier, the bigger picture, and what he meant. You know, and the one thing I took from it Lawrence, is that there are very few times in everybody's life where that singular, something happens to one individual that makes us reflect on our existence. And I think Kobe, because it was so unexpected, because of who he was, and because at least in the NBA, when you're dealing with basketball, you know, and this is no disrespect to like, you know, Pete Maravich, you know, and the others who, who happened to die young, but Pete's the first one that comes to my mind and I'll go with sports heroes and I'll throw Roberto Clemente in there also. And this is no disrespect to them, but if you look at the NBA and how the NBA always seems to celebrate their history. And at some point in time, there's always a recognition of Bill Russell. There's always a recognition of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. There's always a, a recognition of Walt Frazier. You know, there's always a recognition of Bill Walton. There's, you, know, you, you know, before he died, there was, there was a recognition of John Havlicek. You know, when you go through, the Elgin Bale is always there. Jerry West is always recognized. You know, you go through the history, of NBA, their great players seem to just grow old. You know what I'm saying? They've always been a part. The NBA always recognizes them. So there there seems to be a sense of immortality with them. Like NBA legends don't really die. They're always around. You know what I'm saying? And for Kobe to hit the way he did changed that entire belief system. It changed that narrative. It's like, oh, my God. He's supposed to be almost the immortal of all the immortal ones. We're supposed to be talking about Kobe the same way we talking about Bill Russell. You know, we're supposed to see him into his 70s. And when we didn't, if you take that component along with the, you know, it very rarely do superstars die at this age, and the way it happened and how it happened, his death made us look at our own mortality and realize that, yes, we are actually going to die. I think that hit a lot of people personally, like, yeah, we believe in death, and maybe some friends of ours died. But then there's a sense there, some of us are immortal. You know, some of us is it's not gonna happen, or it's not gonna happen, or it's gonna happen a certain way. Like certain lives are gonna play themselves out the way they're supposed to. God has a plan for that person. And I think Kobe's one of those individuals we thought God had a plan for, but we didn't know God's plan was this. And it made us look at God's plan for us in a different way, if that makes any sense.
0: It makes all the sense. And it's funny. I, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out why I was spending a lot of time talking with people about Ben Wilson over the last few weeks. And it clicked the Kobe thing clicked, And I was like, I remember being nine. I remember Ben Wilson dying. And I remember that being the biggest thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Like if, and the feelings were similar. So I had a conversation with Tim Hardaway about Benji. I talked with Casey Johnson about Benji. I had a great conversation just a couple of days ago with Doug Bruno. So so allow me to ask you about Ben Wilson. And what is it that – because, Scoop, maybe you wouldn't be surprised at this. but Maybe you would. When I brought up Ben Wilson around All-Star Week on the air, there were people who honestly, like, texted into the show, was like, who's Ben Wilson? I don't know his story. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't like they weren't being dicks about it. It's just they didn't, right. know. didn't know. And right? It was cool to see new people go, how good was he, Lawrence? Like, how? What, what, what was he like? Would you compare him to LeBron? I said, well, look, I was nine. And I know that, that Benji was a god back then when yeah. we're walking around the south side of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. But For those who don't know, I'm trying to put together a bunch of of clips of people that did know to explain it, the impact that Ben Wilson, the basketball player, and the death of Ben Wilson had on Chicago.
1: Yeah, very rarely. um, I'll put it this way. Very rarely do you have somebody of that talent at that age be taken away from us. You know, and when I'm saying that talent, I'm talking about recognized talent. There's a lot of individuals that – uh, taken away from us very early, and we didn't know they had that talent within them. But here's a kid that was 18 years old that had been right, the number one high school basketball player in the country. I think, I'm gonna be, I think I'm very specific here. I think he was the first in the history of Chicago to get that honor. Now, if you think about all the other players that, you know, come from this city. They even came before him. You know what I'm saying? The Quinn Buckners, the Cassie Russells, the George Mikens. You know what I'm saying? Legendary Hall of Fame players. None of them had reached the pinnacle of being the number one high school basketball player in the country. Mark Aguirre, Isaiah Thomas. We can go down the line. None of them. Sonny Parker, Ricky Green, Pastor Larkin, Charlie Brown, Jeff Hornacek. We go down the line, like I said, Cassidy in the Hall of Fame. Cassidy, you know, considered some of the greatest of their era. You know, none of them had become number one in the country as a basketball player. So I say that all to say that puts into context how great Ben Wilson was, period. 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 6'8", wasn't as thick as LeBron, but he was the first. He was like Anthony Davis before Anthony Davis, and I say that to say is he's the one that went through that growth spurt when he Mm -hmm. grew seven inches in a short period of time, and he never lost his guard skills. You know, the nickname he was given was Magic Johnson with a jump shot, you know, because he came a few years, you know, after Magic at 6'8", was doing his thing. Um, And... He was a kid who basically was, once he became 6'8", he was a basketball prodigy, you know, and the the, the comparison I can make to those younger individuals, now, literally the comparison I can make that they don't understand it is literally he's Anthony Davis, except he went from 6'1 to 6'9 where Anthony went from 6'2 to 6'11". But it's the exact same height situation, it's the exact same skill set, you know, it's the exact same ability. The only difference is that Anthony Davis was at a small school and Ben was at Simeon with Bob Hambry, you know, which is more of a quote unquote power. You know, I'm saying Simeon wasn't a powerhouse at the time, but it wasn't perspective. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't nice. off the uh, school, right. But that's, it's, it's the exact same story. They both wound up being no more player in high school, you know, and, and to me, you know, taking almost all things in consideration, you could look at what Anthony Davis became and you could tra- traject what could have happened to, ben, you know, uh, to Benji at the time because that's the way it was supposed to play out. That's the exact way it was supposed to play out. So who was Ben Wilson? Anthony Davis. That's exactly who he was, who he, who he became. And that is the best answer to how great he could have been and um, how great he was at the time. You know, now keep in mind, you know, one, one of the things I, I, I appreciate that I was able to do in the course of my career was, and this goes back to Slam Magazine being a national magazine, we were the first people to ever write a national story on Ben Wilson. You know, um, it, his, his story was a local story until the, it was my second issue, my yeah, we, I came to the slam in issue number three. And issue number four, Tony Gervino's like, hey, yo, what do you want to write about? I'm like, man, there's a story here in Chicago about this kid named Ben Wilson. You know, they're New York guys. Well, we don't know nothing about them. You know, but once again, they trusted me with the story. So I was able to finally tell Ben Wilson's story on a national level and give it the national spotlight. And... um that still means a lot to me, but because, because of that story in Slam Magazine back in whatever, 94, whatever, however long it was ago, um, talk of his story started floating around Hollywood and there was scripts floating around about telling his story because of that story. And because those scripts could never come to agreement on how the story wanted to get told, we were able to get you know, people who had scripts in hand in front of us at ESPN and pitched that story to us at ESPN where we were able to turn, get everybody on the same page to at least do a 30 for 30 and tell the story of his life. You know what I'm saying? And do it the right way and do it the correct way where to me, and maybe I'm biased on this because, you know, I was a part of that storytelling. But to me, if you look at the whole roster of 30 for 30s, I would put Ben Wilson's 30 for 30 up with anyone they've ever done. Any 30 for 30 has ever been done. And for anybody who hasn't seen it or doesn't know about Ben Wilson, watch that 30 for 30.
0: I think that's good advice. You've been super gracious with your time. I want to just ask again, for people that, that you're, you're trying to get people to get the book, the game is not a game. What can they expect when they read this book?
1: Um, Wow, what can they expect? Hopefully, they can expect to go through the 13 chapters in that book and look at every single subject matter that that chapter is about and see it differently than they did before they read it. That's, that's That's really all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to shine a different perspective on 13 subject matters dealing with sports and give the reader not only a different experience, but a different vantage point and a different viewpoint of how to look through the prism of these subject matters. And if you walk away with saying, well, damn, you know, I didn't think about it that way, then I'm good. You know, then, then I've done my job. And well, that's a lie, Lawrence. That's the one thing I want to do. The second thing I want people to walk away from it. I want to say, damn, motherfucker can write.
0: <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. I think that, I think that they will. Um, I, to, to use the, the Kanye, you give people the flowers well, while they're still living. Do you understand the level of... The the levels that you keep talking, you talk about the levels of people that you have influenced. I, to be honest with you,
1: that's a yes and a no answer. I try not to, but the beauty of it is that, and it goes back to what you said about my authentic, authenticity and trying to live in that. I think people feel connected to me in a way that they remind me and let me know at all times of the impact and influence I've had. And it's a beautiful thing. I've never had anybody shy away from like, like, Hey man, I haven't had that, you know, stand standoffish situation with people publicly. You know, I think people have shown that they, in, at least my personal experience, my personal face feel connected to me in a way that they feel compelled to tell me th- the things that I've done that have meant something to them. So I, I can't say that, I don't know. Cause it's always been there in front of my face and it's something I appreciate a lot.
0: It's it's a big deal, whether it's Jonathan or Jason or me or Jack Silverstein or Sarah Spain. Like there's a there's an army of your disciples walking around in sports media now. Like that, I mean it's and it's it's cool, man. It's it's a it's a cool thing that you've gone out of your way to give all of us encouragement to be our authentic selves like whatever that is to be that and to get that type of validation from someone who we read and respect and love like that is a it's a big deal man like I appreciate that it is true I appreciate that you know there's always things you know when you're trying
1: to carve whatever career it is you're trying to carve and 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 not compromise yourself and not feel that you have to apologize for anything along the way you know there are times when you wonder if what you're doing is going to be well received you believe it's going to be received because you're putting out your best work so you believe that there is there is going to be some reception for it that's what you want to tell yourself believe but you don't know if it's going to be well received and you know, knowing that over the course, especially lately within the last 10 years, you know, I've really gotten a great understanding of how well some of the stuff I've done has been received and how meaningful it's actually been, you know, and, and from people that are even outside of this game that you and I are in, like people that, that walks of life that I've never even thought would even be connected to anything I, you know what I'm saying? Anything, like I had, I had Ken Jong, the comedian, literally, literally walk up to me and tell me. He said, "Man, you have no idea. You're the reason I got through grad school." I'm like, he said, "I got my, I got my PhD because of you." I'm like, I never met you, you know. Dude, you know, I'm sitting here wanting to talk to him about the hangover, and I'm like, dude, you my million dollars, but he's like, nah, man, you have no idea, and you don't even think I'm like, how does this dude even know me? But he's like, in, you know, going, you know, going through med school, the only outlet I had for not studying this was Slam magazine, and every month I would read, because you would give me an escape that kept me grounded, and I would, you know, and I'm like, wow, you know what I'm saying? Shit like that happens on a regular basis, like out of nowhere, like, dude, you have no idea. You know what I'm saying? Like no idea whatsoever. And you know, people that, you know, I didn't even know knew who I know anywhere. Like, why do you even know who I am? You know, say, no, nah, you have dude, you know, you know, you 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 had an impact. And it's 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 crazy because us is right, I think, you know, you're a broadcaster. I think it's a little bit different because your voice is out there. Your name is out there. You know, when when you're writing, it's such a hidden form of communication that many people don't even read the name or the byline of the person they're writing. They just read whatever. It could be so invisible. So I'm still, even after being in this thing for damn near 30 years or whatever, I'm still shocked at times when people recognize and connect me to the work that I do. Because it can be so easily overlooked. It can be so easily overlooked, you know? So it's a a blessing. And yes, thanks to brothers like you, you know, you have made it your point to, you know, let me know. And it, you know, makes me feel good. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. I will be at the event and I will tell everyone about the book.
1: Uh, no problem. I appreciate you being there. I appreciate you having yeah. me on, man. Thanks for helping me plug this
0: thing. You know, I'm not into marketing. <laughs> I know, I know. You're into writing. and right. that's, that's totally fine. But let us do the we'll carry the water on this one and we'll we'll bring more people to the book, man. Thank you, sir. I know you got family stuff to do, so go do your family stuff. But thank you so much good. for being on the it's podcast. All good. I'll see you in a couple weeks, baby. Appreciate you. All right, man. Thanks, man. Yes, sir. Yes up. my man my man thank you so much
1: No, oh, thanks man. i really really appreciate it i appreciate the love too always man you always you hood golf oh yeah man oh all, I mean, all y'all, y'all always show me like crazy love and i really appreciate it man
0: yeah man hey you you're here to lead the way we're just trying to follow and 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 try to work off of it and use our own individual things to 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 be authentic and it's yeah. It's yeah,
1: good. no, and, and, and I appreciate it, man. I mean, you put in work and hopefully, you know, it resonates and does some things. But, you know, if, if I've been able to give y'all a platform, you know, um, and a light to feel comfortable with being yourself and not having to, like, bow down and cow down and, you know, do, you know, play a certain role, you know, just believe in what you're able to contribute to the game, cool. That's, that's you know, up, man. that's what it that's, is. That's all up. You know what I'm saying? I'll see you next week. Yep. See you next week, big boy.
0: Okay. So obviously we're not going to have the get together for scoops book, but you should still order it on Amazon. The game is not a game is the name of the book. The game is not a game. It will be available March 17th on Amazon and Hey Dot org. All right. Let me talk about what's going on. And everything that's happening kind of around us all. It has been a week filled with stress. For all of us, for everyone, because. The impact of coronavirus worldwide and now how it is affecting America. A lot of us are having a difficult time trying to figure out how to best protect ourselves and our loved ones and then the larger communities i am someone who has crohn's disease so to to give you an idea of i'm one of those people that's at risk and i say that because i just want you to understand that you could see me on television and be like oh well you know nothing's wrong with lauren so i know he has crohn's but That's just a digestive situation. Well, it's autoimmune. So to break this down to like the simplest terms imaginable, my immune system is at war with my digestive system. So my immune system attacks my digestive system, so I have to take chemotherapeutic drugs. In other words, for my overactive immune system, I have to suppress my immune system or my symptoms and the disease of Crohn's is going to get worse and worse and worse until I have no digestive system left. That's as simple, it's more complicated than that, but that's as simple as I can make it. So I take Umera, like you've probably seen the commercials for Umera, that's what one of the things that Umera does, it suppresses your immune system. And for the most part, I I can live like a pretty normal life. Stay away from foods that upset me for the most part, and I'm good. And actually, I've been in a really good place. I would say for the last maybe two years, I've been in a really good place. And I would say that over the last year, with me kind of increasing, working out again, I've been in an excellent place where I don't even know if... My doctors would say I'm in remission, but you're almost like never in remission when it comes to Crohn's like it can pop up at any time. But if I take care of myself, if I continue to work out, eat better, and I don't always eat great. You know how I love donuts and sweets and all sorts of other stuff. But if I do a good job of that, then I would consider my Crohn's to be mild. That's a good word for it. But I'm still at risk. And so I've been trying to take as many steps as I can. You don't want to panic, but you do want to not do things that are just foolish to do them. Like I'm staying in the house more often than I would. I'm washing my hands way more than I would, although I was pretty good about that anyway. I'm making sure to wipe down hard surface consoles and and I'm trying to limit me being in big groups now. I was in a big group on Friday because DePaul had an all-staff meeting. And there were about 60 of us that were in a big conference room talking about changing our curriculum to online. But other than that, I've really limited it. The thing is, is that I'm if I got it, I don't know what would happen. Uh, I'm sure I would talk with my gastro. I keep wondering if, if, for me, the solution would be to stop all of my medications and allow my immune system to go crazy on coronavirus. And then, at, hopefully, on the other side of it, then having to put my Crohn's back in check. But there are a lot of people who are like me that have arthritis, who have lupus, who have any other autoimmune disorder that are at risk. And I wish that more people would take seriously the risk to us as a community. Like these are your friends, your teachers, your your spouses in some cases. And they need to be taken care of too. I'm not here to be preachy. i It's just one of the things that I'm going through as I work through this. As it stands right now, our building at the radio station is still open. Our building at the television station are still open. And we still plan to broadcast. There are some contingencies, like I was saying, with Zoom. It's possible that I can do the radio show from here where I'm recording the podcast, like my office at home. But... Since everyone is going online, it might be more difficult than maybe I thought last week. Anyway, I know we all think that we're invincible and that leads to us sometimes trying to prove our invincibility by doing some of this stuff. I would just say be careful. I would also say take as much of a break from social media as you can it's hard when you work in media raising left hand um because we need to stay informed on everything that's going on i think it's amazing that the nfl was like we ain't stopping we going we going to sign these contracts and we're going to do this collective bargaining thing and all that good stuff but i have to kind of keep abreast of what's going on it can be overwhelming even for me and like vetting what I find to be credible versus not credible or helpful versus alarmist has been a real exercise in media discipline so that's where I'm at but I'm glad that I got a chance to talk with Scoop cuz that dude just makes me happy and he makes me want to work harder. And that's one thing I I'm I'm going to churn out content, man. Whether it's podcast, probably mostly podcast or the radio show, I'm going to churn out podcast because content because I know people need it. They they want to escape for a, a, an hour at a time. And I'm sorry that I drag that this conversation into it so i'll just end the podcast all right thank you very much for listening i already got a couple of really great episodes already like taken care of so next week we'll have a new episode and the week after that i got a new episode and the week after that i got a new episode i did a good job of getting ahead and doing some of this stuff remotely has actually been helpful in that regard I hate to sound like Jerry Springer, but take care of yourself and everyone else. I'll talk to you next week. Peace.